Chapter Twenty of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Peebles. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume Two, Paris in Prison by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode Eight: Convent Affairs, Chapter Twenty. I am in danger of perishing in the lagoons. Illness. Letters from C. C. and M. M. The quarrel is made up. Meeting at the casino of Murren, I learn the name of M. M.'s friend and consent to give him a supper at my casino in the company of our common mistress. The weather was fearful. The wind was blowing fiercely and it was bitterly cold. When I reached the shore, I looked for a gondola. I called the gondoliers, but in contravention to the police regulations, there was neither gondola nor gondolier. What was I to do? Dressed in light linen, I was hardly in a fit state to walk along the wharf for an hour in such weather. I should most likely have gone back to the casino if I had had the key, but I was paying the penalty of the foolish spite which had made me give it up. The wind almost carried me off my feet, and there was no house that I could enter to get a shelter. I had in my pockets three hundred philippes that I had won in the evening, and a purse full of gold. I had therefore every reason to fear the thieves of Murren, a very dangerous class of cutthroats, determined murderers who enjoyed and abused a certain impunity, because they had some privileges granted to them by the government on account of the services they rendered in the manufactories of looking-glasses and in the glass-works which are numerous on the island. In order to prevent their emigration, the government had granted them the freedom of Venice. I dreaded meeting a pair of them, who would have stripped me of everything at least. I had not by chance with me the knife which all honest men must carry to defend their lives in my dear country. I was truly in an unpleasant predicament. I was thus painfully situated when I thought I could see a light through the crevices of a small house. I knocked modestly against the shutter. A voice called out, Who is knocking? And at the same moment the shutter was pushed open. What do you want? asked a man, rather astonished at my costume. I explained my predicament in a few words, and giving him one sequin, I begged his permission to shelter myself under his roof. Convinced by my sequin rather than my words, he opened the door. I went in, and promising him another sequin for his trouble, I requested him to get me a gondola to take me to Venice. He dressed himself hurriedly, thanking God for that piece of good fortune, and went out assuring me that he would soon get me a gondola. I remained alone in a miserable room in which all his family, sleeping together in a large ill-looking bed, were staring at me in consequence of my extraordinary costume. In half an hour the good man returned to announce that the gondoliers were at the wharf, but that they wanted to be paid in advance. I raised no objection, gave a sequin to the man for his trouble, and went to the wharf. The sight of two strong gondoliers made me get into the gondola without anxiety, and we left the shore without being much disturbed by the wind. But when we had gone beyond the island, the storm attacked us with such fury that I thought myself lost, for although a good swimmer, I was not sure I had strength enough to resist the violence of the waves and swim to the shore. I ordered the men to go back to the island, but they answered that I had not to deal with a couple of cowards, and that I had no occasion to be afraid. I knew the disposition of our gondoliers, and I made up my mind to say no more. 
but the wind increased in violence the foaming waves rushed into the gondola and my two rowers in spite of their vigour and of their courage could no longer guide it we were only within one hundred yards of the mouth of the jesuits canal when a terrible gust of wind threw one of the barcaroles into the sea most fortunately he contrived to hold by the gondola and to get in again but he had lost his oar and while he was securing another the gondola had tacked and had already gone a considerable distance abreast the position called for immediate decision and i had no wish to take my supper with neptune i threw a handful of philippes into the gondola and ordered the gondoliers to throw overboard the fels which covered the boat the ringing of money as much as the imminent danger ensured instant obedience and then the wind having less hold upon us my brave boatman showed aeolus that their efforts could conquer him for in less than five minutes we shot into the beggar's canal and i reached the bragadan palace i went to bed at once covering myself heavily in order to regain my natural heat but sleep which alone could have restored me to health would not visit me five or six hours afterwards monsieur de bragadin and his two inseparable friends paid me a visit and found me raving with fever that did not prevent my respectable protector from laughing at the sight of the costume of pierrot lying on the sofa after congratulating me upon having escaped with my life out of such a bad predicament they left me alone in the evening i perspired so profusely that my bed had to be changed the next day my fever and delirium increased and two days after the fever having abated i found myself almost crippled and suffering fearfully with lumbago i felt that nothing could relieve me but a strict regimen and i bore the evil patiently early on the wednesday morning laura the faithful messenger called on me i was still in my bed i told her that i could neither read nor write and i asked her to come again the next day she placed on the table near my bed the parcel she had for me and she left me knowing what had occurred to me sufficiently to enable her to inform c c of the state in which i was feeling a little better towards the evening i ordered my servant to lock me in my room and i opened c c s letter the first thing i found in the parcel and which caused me great pleasure was the key of the casino which she returned to me i had already repented having given it up and i was beginning to feel that i had been in the wrong it acted like a refreshing balm upon me the second thing not less dear after the return of the precious key was a letter from m m the seal of which i was not long in breaking and i read the following lines the particulars which you have read or which you are going to read in the letter of my friend will cause you i hope to forget the fault which i have committed so innocently for i trusted on the contrary that you would be very happy i saw all and heard all and would not have gone away without the key if i had not most unfortunately fallen asleep an hour before your departure take back the key and come to the casino to-morrow night since heaven has saved you from the storm your love may perhaps give you the right to complain but not to ill-treat a woman who certainly has not given you any mark of contempt i afterwards read the letter of my dear c c and i will give a copy of it here because i think it will prove interesting i entreat you dear husband not to send back this key unless you have become the most cruel of men unless you find pleasure in tormenting two women who love you ardently and who love you for yourself only knowing your excellent heart i trust you will go to the casino to-morrow evening and make it up with m m who cannot go there to-night you will see that you are in the wrong dearest 
and that far from despising you, my dear friend loves you only. In the meantime, let me tell you what you are not acquainted with, and what you must be anxious to know. Immediately after you had gone away, in that fearful storm which caused me such anguish, and just as I was preparing to return to the convent, I was much surprised to see standing before me my dear M. M., who from some hiding-place had heard all you had said. She had several times been on the point of showing herself, but she had always been prevented by the fear of coming out of season, and thus stopping a reconciliation which she thought was inevitable between two fond lovers. Unfortunately, sleep had conquered her before her departure, and she only woke when the alarm struck, too late to detain you, for you had rushed with the haste of a man who was flying from some terrible danger. As soon as I saw her I gave her the key, although I did not know what it meant, and my friend, heaving a deep sigh, told me that she would explain everything as soon as we were safe in her room. We left the casino in a dreadful storm, trembling for your safety and not thinking of our own danger. As soon as we were in the convent I resumed my usual costume, and M. M. went to bed. I took a seat near her, and this is what she told me. When you left your ring in my hands to go to your aunt, who had sent for you, I examined it with so much attention that at last I suspected the small blue spot to be connected with the secret spring. I took a pin, succeeded in removing the top part, and I cannot express the joy I felt when I saw that we both loved the same man. But no more can I give you an idea of my sorrow when I thought that I was encroaching upon your rights. Delighted, however, with my discovery, I immediately conceived a plan which would procure you the pleasure of supping with him. I closed the ring again and returned it to you, telling you at the same time that I had not been able to discover anything. I was then truly the happiest of women, knowing your heart, knowing that you were aware of the love of your lover for me, since I had innocently showed you his portrait, and happy in the idea that you were not jealous of me, I would have despised myself if I had entertained any feelings different from your own, the more so that your rights over him were by far stronger than mine. As for the mysterious manner in which you always kept from me the name of your husband, I easily guessed that you were only obeying his orders, and I admired your noble sentiments and the goodness of your heart. In my opinion, your lover was afraid of losing us both. If we found out that neither the one nor the other of us possessed his whole heart, I could not express my deep sorrow when I thought that after you had seen me in possession of his portrait, you continued to act in the same manner towards me, although you could not any longer hope to be the sole object of his love. Then I had but one idea, to prove to both of you that M. M. is worthy of your affection, of your friendship, of your esteem. I was indeed thoroughly happy when I thought that the felicity of our trio would be increased a hundredfold, for is it not an unbearable misery to keep a secret from the being we adore? I made you take my place, and I thought that proceeding a masterpiece. You allowed me to dress you as a nun, and with a compliance which proves your confidence in me, you went to my casino without knowing where you were going. As soon as you had landed, the gondola came back, and I went to a place well known to our friend, from which, without being seen, I could follow all your movements and hear everything you said. I was the author of the play. It was natural that I should witness it, the more so that I felt certain of seeing and hearing nothing that would not be very agreeable to me. I reached the casino a quarter of an hour after you, and I cannot tell you my delightful surprise when I saw that dear Perrault, who had amused us so much, 
and whom we had not recognized. But I was fated to feel no other pleasure than that of his appearance. Fear, surprise, and anxiety overwhelmed me at once when I saw the effect produced upon him by the disappointment of his expectation, and I felt unhappy. Our lover took the thing wrongly, and he went away in despair. He loves me still, but if he thinks of me, it is only to try to forget me. Alas, he will succeed but too soon. By sending back that key, he proves that he will never again go to the casino. Fatal night, when my only wish was to minister to the happiness of three persons. How is it that the very reverse of my wish has occurred? It will kill me, dear friend, unless you contrive to make him understand reason, for I feel that without him I cannot live. You must have the means of writing to him. You know him. You know his name. In the name of all goodness, send back this key to him with a letter to persuade him to come to the casino tomorrow or on the following day, if it is only to speak to me, and I hope to convince him of my love and my innocence. Rest today, dearest, but tomorrow write to him, tell him the whole truth, take pity on your poor friend, and forgive her for f loving your lover. I shall write a few lines myself. You will enclose them in your letter. It is my fault if he no longer loves you. You ought to hate me, and yet you are generous enough to love me. I adore you. I have seen his tears. I have seen how well his soul can love. I know him now. I could not have believed that men were able to love so much. I have passed a terrible night. Do not think I am angry, dear friend, because you confided to him that we love one another like two lovers. It does not displease me, and with him it was no indiscretion, because his mind is as free of prejudices as his heart is good. Tears were choking her. I tried to console her, and I most willingly promised her to write to you. She never closed her eyes throughout that day, but I slept soundly for four hours. When we got up we found the convent full of bad news, which interested us a great deal more than people imagined. It was reported that an hour before daybreak a fishing boat had been lost in the lagoon, that two gondolas had been capsized, and that the people in them had perished. You may imagine our anguish. We dared not ask any questions, but it was just the hour at which you had left me, and we entertained the darkest forebodings. We returned to our room where M. M. fainted away. More courageous than she is, I told her that you were a good swimmer, but I could not allay her anxiety, and she went to bed with a feverish chill. Just at that moment my aunt, who was of a very cheerful disposition, came in laughing to tell us that during the storm the Perrault, who had made us laugh so much, had had a narrow escape of being drowned. "'Ah, the poor Perrault!' I exclaimed. "'Tell us all about him, dear aunt. I am very glad he was saved. Who is he? Do you know?' "'Oh, yes,' she answered. "'Everything is known, for he was taken home by our gondoliers. One of them has just told me that Perrault, having spent the night at the Beati Ball did not find any gondola to return to Venice, and that our gondoliers took him for a sequin. One of the men fell into the sea, but then the brave Perrault, throwing handfuls of silver upon the Xenia, pitched the fels overboard, and the wind having less hold, they reached Venice safely through the beggar's canal. This morning the lucky gondoliers divided thirty philippes which they found in the gondola, and they have been fortunate enough to pick up their fels. Pierrot will remember Murin and the ball at Briotti. The man says that he is the son of Monsieur de Bragadin, the procurator's brother. He was taken to the palace of that nobleman, nearly dead from cold, for he was dressed in light calico and had no cloak. 
When my aunt had left us, we looked at one another for several minutes without uttering a word, but we felt that the good news had brought back life to us. M. M. asked me whether you were really the son of M. de Bragadin. It might be so, I said to her, but his name does not show my lover to be the bastard of that nobleman, and still less his legitimate child, for M. de Bragadin was never married. I should be very sorry, said M. M., if he were his son. I thought it right, then, to tell her your true name, and of the application made to my father by M. de Bragadin for my hand, the consequence of which was that I had been shut up in the convent. Therefore, my own darling, your little wife has no longer any secret to keep from M. M., and I hope you will not accuse me of indiscretion, for it is better that our dear friend should know all the truth than only half of it. We have been greatly amused, as you may well suppose, by the certainty with which people say that you spent all the night at the Briati Ball. When people do not know everything, they invent, and what might be is often accepted in the place of what is in reality. Sometimes it proves very fortunate. At all events, the news did a great deal of good to my friend, who is now much better. She has had an excellent night, and the hope of seeing you at the casino has restored all her beauty. She has read this letter three or four times, and has smothered me with kisses. I long to give her the letter which you are going to write to her. The messenger will wait for it. Perhaps I shall see you again at the casino, and in a better temper, I hope. Adieu. It did not require much argument to conquer me. When I had finished the letter, I was at once the admirer of C.C. and the ardent lover of M.M. But alas, although the fever had left me, I was crippled. Certain that Laura would come again early the next morning, I could not refrain from writing to both of them a short letter. It is true, but long enough to assure them that reason had again taken possession of my poor brain. I wrote to C.C. that she had done right in telling her friend my name, the more so that, as I did not attend their church any longer, I had no reason to make a mystery of it. In everything else, I freely acknowledged myself in the wrong, and I promised her that I would atone by giving M.M. the strongest possible proofs of my repentance as soon as I could go again to her casino. This is the letter that I wrote to my adorable nun. I gave C.C. the key of your casino, to be returned to you, my own charming friend, because I believed myself trifled with and despised, of malice aforethought, by the woman I worship. In my error I thought myself unworthy of presenting myself before your eyes, and in spite of love, horror made me shudder. Such was the effect produced upon me by an act which would have appeared to me admirable if my self-love had not blinded me and upset my reason. But, dearest, to admire it would have been necessary for my mind to be as noble as yours, and I have proved how far it is from being so. I am inferior to you in all things, except in passionate love, and I will prove it to you at our next meeting, when I will beg on my knees a generous pardon. Believe me, beloved creature, if I wish ardently to recover my health, it is only to have it in my power to prove by my love a thousand times increased how ashamed I am of my errors. My painful lumbago has alone prevented me from answering your short note yesterday, to express to you my regrets, and the love which has been enhanced in me by your generosity, alas, so badly rewarded. I can assure you that in the lagoons, with death staring me in the face, I regretted no one but you, nothing but having outraged you. But in the fearful danger then threatening me, I only saw punishment from heaven. If I had not cruelly sent back to you the key of the casino, I should most likely have returned 
there, and should have avoided the sorrow as well as the physical pains which I am now suffering as an expiation. I thank you a thousand times for having recalled me to myself, and you may be certain that for the future I will keep better control over myself. Nothing shall make me doubt your love, but darling, what do you say of C.C.? Is she not an incarnate angel who can be compared to no one but you? You love us both equally. I am the only one weak and faulty, and you make me ashamed of myself. Yet I feel that I would give my life for her as well as for you. I feel curious about one thing, but I cannot trust it to paper. You will satisfy that curiosity the first time I shall be able to go to the casino before two days at the earliest. I will let you know two days beforehand. In the meantime, I entreat you to think a little of me, and to be certain of my devoted love. Adieu. The next morning Laura found me sitting up in bed, and in a fair way to recover my health. I requested her to tell C.C. that I felt much better, and I gave her the letter I had written. She had brought me one from my dear little wife, in which I found enclosed a note from M.M. Those two letters were full of tender expressions of love, anxiety for my health, and ardent prayers for my recovery. Six days afterwards, feeling much stronger, I went to Murin, where the keeper of the casino handed me a letter from M.M. She wrote to me how impatient she was for my complete recovery, and how desirous she was to see me in possession of her casino, with all the privileges which she hoped I would retain for ever. "'Let me know, I entreat you,' she added, "'when we are likely to meet again, either at Murin or in Venice, as you please. Be quite certain that whenever we meet we shall be alone and without a witness.' I answered at once, telling her that we would meet the day after the morrow, at her casino, because I wanted to receive her loving absolution in the very spot where I had outraged the most generous of women. I was longing to see her again, for I was ashamed of my cruel injustice towards her, and panting to atone for my wrongs. Knowing her disposition and reflecting calmly upon what had taken place, it was now evident to me that what she had done, very far from being a mark of contempt, was the refined effort of a love wholly devoted to me. Since she had found out that I was the lover of her young friend, could she imagine that my heart belonged only to herself? In the same way that her love for me did not prevent her from being compliant with the ambassador, she admitted the possibility of my being the same with C.C. She overlooked the difference of constitution between the two sexes, and the privileges enjoyed by women. Now that age has whitened my hair and deadened the ardor of my senses, my imagination does not take such a high flight, and I think differently. I am conscious that my beautiful nuns sinned against womanly reserve and modesty, the two most beautiful appanages of the fair sex, but if that unique, or at least rare, woman was guilty of an eccentricity which I then thought a virtue, she was at all events exempt from that fearful venom called jealousy an unhappy passion which devours the miserable being who is laboring under it, and destroys the love that gave it birth. Two days afterwards, on the 4th of February, 1754, I had the supreme felicity of finding myself again alone with my beloved mistress. She wore the dress of a nun. As we both felt guilty, the moment we saw each other by a spontaneous movement, we fell both on our knees, folded in each other's arms. We had both ill-treated love, she had treated him like a child, I had adored him after the fashion of a Jansenist. 
but where could we have found the proper language for the excuses we had to address to each other for the mutual forgiveness we had to entreat and to grant kisses that mute yet expressive language that delicate voluptuous contact which sends sentiment coursing rapidly through the veins which expresses at the same time the feeling of the heart and the impressions of the mind that language was the only one we had recourse to and without having uttered one syllable dear reader Oh, how well we agreed! Both overwhelmed with emotion, longing to give one another some proofs of the sincerity of our reconciliation and of the ardent fire which was consuming us, we rose without unclasping our arms, and falling, a most amorous group, on the nearest sofa, we remained there until the heaving of a deep sigh which we would not have stopped even if we had known that it was to be the last. Thus was completed our happy reconciliation, and the calm infused into the soul by contentment burst into a hearty laugh when we noticed that I had kept on my cloak and my mask. After we had enjoyed our mirth, I unmasked myself, and I asked her whether it was quite true that no one had witnessed our reconciliation. She took up one of the candlesticks, and seizing my hand, "'Come,' she said. She led me to the other end of the room, before a large cupboard which I had already suspected of containing the secret. She opened it, and when she had moved a sliding plank I saw a door through which we entered a pretty closet furnished with everything necessary to a person wishing to pass a few hours there. Near the sofa was a sliding panel. M. M. removed it, and through twenty holes placed at a distance from each other I saw every part of the room in which nature and love had performed for our curious friend a play in six acts, during which I did not think he had occasion to be dissatisfied with the actors. Now, said M. M., I am going to satisfy the curiosity which you were prudent enough not to trust to paper. But you cannot guess. Silence, dearest. Love would not be of divine origin did he not possess the faculty of divination. He knows all, and here is the proof. Do you not wish to know whether my friend was with me during the fatal night which has cost me so many tears? You have guessed rightly. Well, then, he was with me, and you must not be angry, for you then completed your conquest of him. He admired your character, your love, your sentiments, your honesty. He could not help expressing his astonishment at the rectitude of my instinct, or his approval of the passion I felt for you. It was he who consoled me in the morning, assuring me that you would certainly come back to me as soon as you knew my real feelings, the loyalty of my intentions, and my good faith. But you must often have fallen asleep, for unless excited by some powerful interest, it is impossible to pass eight hours in darkness and in silence. We were moved by the deepest interest. Besides, we were in darkness only when we kept these holes open. The plank was on during our supper, and we were listening in religious silence to your slightest whisper. The interest which kept my friend awake was perhaps greater than mine. He told me that he never had had before a better opportunity of studying the human heart, and that you must have passed the most painful night. He truly pitied you. We were delighted with C.C., for it is indeed wonderful that a young girl of fifteen should reason as she did to justify my conduct without any other weapons but those given her by nature and truth she must have the soul of an angel if you ever marry her you will have the most heavenly wife i shall of course feel miserable if i lose her but your happiness will make amends for all do you know dearest that i cannot understand how you could fall in love with me after having known her 
any more than I can conceive how she does not hate me ever since she has discovered that I have robbed her of your heart. My dear C. C. has truly something divine in her disposition. Do you know why she confided to you her barren loves with me? Because she has told me herself. She wished to ease her conscience, thinking that she was in some measure unfaithful to you. Does she think herself bound to be entirely faithful to me with the knowledge she has now of my own unfaithfulness? She is particularly delicate and conscientious, and though she believes herself truly your wife, she does not think that she has any right to control your actions, but she believes herself bound to give you an account of all she does. Noble girl! The prudent wife of the doorkeeper having brought the supper, we sat down to the well-supplied table. M. M. remarked that I had become much thinner. The pains of the body do not fatten a man, I said, and the sufferings of the mind emaciate him but we have suffered sufficiently, and we must be wise enough never to recall anything which can be painful to us. You are quite right, my love. The instants that man is compelled to give up to misfortune or to suffering are as many moments stolen from his life, but he doubles his existence when he has the talent of multiplying his pleasures, no matter of what nature they may be. We amuse ourselves in talking over past dangers, Perrault's disguise, and the ball at Briotti, where she had been told that another Perrault had made his appearance. M. M. wondered at the extraordinary effect of a disguise, for, she said to me, The Perrault in the parlor of the convent seemed to me taller and thinner than you. If chance had not made you take the convent gondola, if you had not had the strange idea of assuming the disguise of Perrault, I should not have known who you were, for my friends in the convent would not have been interested in you. I was delighted when I heard that you were not a patrician, as I feared, because, had you been one, I might, in time, have run some great danger. I knew very well what she had to fear, but pretending complete ignorance. I cannot conceive, I said, what danger you might run on account of my being a patrician. My darling, I cannot speak to you openly, unless you give me your word to do what I am going to ask you. How could I hesitate, my love, in doing anything to please you, provided my honor is not implicated? Have we not now everything in common? Speak idle of my heart, tell me your reasons, and rely upon my love. It is the guarantee of my ready compliance in everything that can give you pleasure. Very well. I want you to give a supper in your casino to me and my friend who is dying to make your acquaintance. And I foresee that after supper you will leave me to go with him. You must feel that propriety compels me to do so. Your friend already knows, I suppose, who I am. I thought it was right to tell him, because if I had not told him, he could not have entertained the hope of supping with you, and especially at your house. I understand. I guess your friend is one of the foreign ambassadors. Precisely. But may I hope that he will so far honor me as to throw up his incognito? That is understood. I shall introduce him to you according to accepted forms, telling his name and his political position. Then it is all for the best, darling. How could you suppose that I would have any difficulty in procuring you that pleasure, when, on the contrary, nothing could please me more myself? Name the day, and be quite certain that I shall anxiously look for it. I should have been sure of your compliance, if you had not given me cause to doubt it. It is a home thrust, but I deserve it and I hope it will not make you angry. Now I am happy. Our friend is Monsieur de Berny, the French ambassador. He will come masked, and as soon as he shows his features, I shall present him to you. 
Recollect that you must treat him as my lover, but you must not appear to know that he is aware of our intimacy. I understand that very well, and you shall have every reason to be pleased with my urbanity. The idea of that supper is delightful to me, and I hope that the reality will be as agreeable. You are quite right, my love, to dread my being a patrician, for in that case the state inquisitors, who very often think of nothing but of making a show of their zeal, would not have failed to meddle with us, and the mere idea of the possible consequences makes me shudder. I, under the leads, you dishonored the abbess, the convent. Good God! Yes, if you had told me what you thought, I would have given you my name, and I could have done so all the more easily that my reserve was only caused by the fear of being known, and of C.C. being taken to another convent by her father. But can you appoint a day for the supper? I long to have it all arranged. Today is the fourth. Well, then, in four days. That will be the eighth? Exactly so. We will go to your casino after the second ballet. Give me all necessary particulars to enable us to find the house without inquiring from anyone. I sat down, and I wrote down the most exact particulars to find the casino either by land or by water. Delighted with the prospect of such a party of pleasure, I asked my mistress to go to bed, but I remarked to her that, being convalescent and having made a hearty supper, I should be very likely to pay my first homages to Morpheus. Yielding to the circumstances, she set the alarm for ten o'clock, and we went to bed in the alcove. As soon as we woke up, love claimed our attention, and he had no cause of complaint. But towards midnight we fell asleep, our lips fastened together, and we found ourselves in that position in the morning when we opened our eyes. Although there was no time to lose, we could not make up our minds to part without making one more offering to Venus. I remained in the casino after the departure of my divinity, and slept until noon. As soon as I had dressed myself, I returned to Venice, and my first care was to give notice to my cook, so that the supper of the 8th of February should be worthy of the guests and worthy of me. End of chapter 20 Recording by Joelle Peebles